0: I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 400th episode of the Jazz Session. Yeah. Um, Let's just try and do that, you know, just like a a little more excitement. I mean, this is supposed to be the 400th show. So just, you know, kind of cheer or something. Pretend you're, you know, at the Daily Show. Here we go. Let's try it again. Three, two. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 400th episode of the Jazz Session. Thanks! Oh, God. Well, here we are, folks. 400 episodes of The Jazz Session. Can you believe it? If these were laid end-to-end, they'd occupy no physical space whatsoever. It's pretty impressive, I have to say. Today's guest is Donald Brown, former jazz messenger. He uh, currently lives in Knoxville, Tennessee. And we'll get to my interview with Donald in just a moment. Starting a few days from now – well, actually, not a few days from now. It's a few days as I record this intro, but it's tomorrow if you're listening to this show in real time. I'm headed to the Detroit Jazz Festival and then doing some traveling on the Jazz or Bust Tour, and you can support that tour by going to thejazzsession.com slash tour and making a one-time donation. You'll get a thank-you gift as a result and maybe multiple thank-you gifts depending on how much bread you kick in. Even more important, well, not even more importantly, but also equally importantly to that, you can become a member, which is a recurring relationship with the Jazz Session, where you make a monthly donation or a yearly donation. And you can do that at thejazzsession.com slash join. And believe you me, I could use some members to help support the show. So please, let's celebrate 400 shows with your membership at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo and Rob Grendel for the Jazz or Bust logo. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, D as in David. Join the 2,525 people. And yes, I did post a video link to the song in the year 2525 when I hit that many followers. Join all those folks who uh, follow me on Twitter, at Jason D. Crane. This show has a mailing list, which goes out once a week on Thursdays. You can join that by going to thejazzsession.com. At the top of the page, you'll see a link that says Mailing List. Just click on that, type in your email, and you are all set. You'll get one email a week, never any spam, and uh, it'll just keep you up to date with what's happening on the show. Huge thanks to everyone who has made this show possible, uh, particularly Matt Rock and Murat Verdi, who are the show's current sponsors thank you to all the members uh, obviously i can't read all of your names but you're all listed on the website in the members section it's just uh you know it's a labor uh, sadly a labor still mostly of love <laughs> as far as i'm concerned but uh it's it's been quite a thrill ride since uh, 2007 when this show began 400 episodes ago so thank you very much to everybody who's made it possible for me to keep doing this crazy thing And now on with the show, my guest is Donald Brown, just one of the nicest human beings I've had a chance to sit down with. I met him uh, at his home in Knoxville, Tennessee, and actually the next night or maybe two nights later, I did a poetry reading there in Knoxville, and Donald came to it, which was very cool. And a recording of that poetry reading is on my poetry blog JasonCrane.org. If you look up in the top right of JasonCrane.org, you'll see a recorded readings section. Just click on that, and you can find recordings of all the readings that I've ever thought to record. We'll hear some music featuring Donald Brown, followed by my conversation with the former jazz messenger, right here on the 400th episode of the Jazz Session. guest is the great pianist and composer and educator Donald Brown and it is it is such a pleasure for me to get a chance to sit down with you. I'm really glad you get the time to do it. Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you for coming.
1: Uh it's hard to know where to start with you, but um I guess I want to ask you about about writing music which uh I mean I certainly have known you for your piano playing over the years, but I've also just heard so many of your compositions and I wanted to know when writing became important to you. Did that start from earliest days or was that something you kind of grew into?
2: You know, uh, it probably started definitely before I got to the piano. Uh, uh, it probably started out more as arranging, like in junior high school. My junior high school band director, uh, he was such a brilliant musician. I tell people that I didn't know what was his main instrument. He could just pick up any instrument and just play it. And so that was kind of, uh, the person I kind of modeled myself out of after. And I started, Learning to play most of the instruments in the band, uh, and originally I was a drummer, and uh, but most of my sisters played piano, so I would kind of learn tunes on the piano. You know, growing up in Memphis, mostly the music of Stax records. So I would I could pick out a lot of those songs by t and MGS and groups like that. But uh, but then I started trying to arrange for my junior high school band, and it was kind of trial and error. Uh, I would write out something in and if it didn't come out right my band director would tell me what I was doing wrong and uh, so by the time I got to high school I was writing some pretty good uh, arrangements for my high school marching band and I and I was starting to get a little name around the city like man it's this young cat placed. at that time I was playing tuba and baritone horn and trumpet and uh, you know I was arranging uh, just some tunes by Sliding the Family Stone just all kinds of stuff for, for the marching band, and and then when I got to started uh, college in what well now it's the University of Memphis uh, in 1972, uh, I just kind of kept writing. But then at that time, I decided to make piano my main instrument, and uh, so uh, and uh, and I did a lot of writing during that time, you know. And uh, uh, you know, James Williams was out at Memphis State. Uh, Bill Mobley was. Uh, playing around town a lot, and Mulgrew Miller came a year after I was there, so you can see it was so a great time to be not only at that school, but in Memphis, you know, Phineas Newman was playing around town, but but uh, at that time, I was, like I said, I was writing some jazz tunes, and, and I had people like Bill and James telling me, man, you write some nice songs, and, and uh, you know... Uh, I appreciate the compliments, but I don't. I don't know if I take it as serious just because I was still more interested in learning the music language of jazz and so. But I was composing, and then I was playing in and out of top 40 bands. So I was writing rhythm and blues songs as well. And uh, so, uh, but you know, I was being complimented a lot. So, uh, if nothing else, I start thinking, well, you know, it's, it's something there that at least if you have that many people telling you that your songs are Okay, uh, uh, whatever that...
1: They can't all be wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. and
2: so, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's when I kind of really started at least taking the kind of serious that, at that time for me to get, be complimented by people like Bill Mobley, who was one of my heroes and still is, and James Williams and so on. For them, you know, I remember doing gigs and Bill would tell me, and James, man, you ought to do more of your your songs, and so, uh. By the time I joined Art Blakey, you know, the, the word kind of really started getting out.
1: Do you feel like it gave you, uh, gave you a bit of an advantage in terms of developing your own writing voice that you had kind of come at it from, I don't know if from the outside is the right term, but I mean, come through stacks, come through the whole Memphis school, come through the R&B and, you know, top 40 thing as you were learning the language of jazz. Do you feel like that, that melding of those influences helped make a distinct voice
2: uh definitely I uh you know it's, I don't I don't know if it's distinct
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would say it is you don't have to say it but I'll say it is. <laughs> yeah I,
2: you know because I'm so close to it sure and, uh but uh but but definitely you know i I, I tell people n- not only the rhythm and blues part but you know I, I used to listen to a lot of classical music and so I feel like that influence is there it's probably not as permanent as as the rhythm and blues thing but but uh, because originally I wanted to be a composition major when I started college, but I tell people when I heard James Williams playing and my band director and Phineas, I just kind of totally abandoned that idea of, of classical composition. But, but you know, I was still listening to a lot of that music as well. And and uh, But I, I, the other thing I tell people I, I think that plays a really big part in what I do is the fact that I... Do play a number of instruments, like you know, I played bass uh, fairly well, you know, enough to do play on some recordings. Uh, uh, I played there was a recording I don't know if it was ever released that, that I did with Al Green, that I played bass on, electric bass on for his choir, and uh, and then you know, like I said, I was originally a drummer, and so playing just those rhythm instruments, bass, drums, and piano, and having played a little clarinet and flute and and trumpet and the brass instruments, it kind of really gives you a a little bit more insight on what you're hearing in terms of being more specific. And it it helps to be able to to be in a recording session and you can go and show the drummer the beat you want or you can play the bass line to to go play the bass line for the bass player. And so I think it makes it a little bit more personal.
1: So I'm interested, you mentioned uh, when you were in college feeling like you were still learning the language of jazz, which mm-hmm. is which is later than I would have imagined in your life, but I'm interested to hear more about that and, and how you were going about doing that.
2: I tell people the first music that I heard that I probably thought was close to jazz was my, my father had some records by King Curtis, a record called Soul Serenade, and there was a... a and then I think he had a little Nat King Cole later. But but otherwise, my band director, my junior and senior year, uh, was the guy who really uh, influenced me a lot because, again, he played in the Memphis Symphony, but then he could play jazz on the piano as well as the saxophone. And so he turned me on to groups like Blood, Sweat & Tears in Chicago, and uh, but then he also turned me on to some Miles records. And... And, uh, so I tell people it was just kind of interesting that no one told me to do that. I just started learning people's solos. So like when I was in high school, I could play Miles's, a lot of his solo on Bags Groove, and but not for me. And, um uh, and at the time I didn't realize, well, this is going to be a big part of the process of learning to play this music, you know, learning solos and learning riffs. So, uh, were so, you learning
1: those by transcribing them or just by ear just and repeating ear. them? Okay.
2: Yeah. And uh, and so uh, when I got to college and, you know, like I said, it was a really great time, you know, to, to be at Memphis State because James Williams was there. And, uh, and then there was several saxophone players. There was a guy named Robert Garner who played, was incredible saxophonist, but he played piano. just incredible. And there was another guy named Robert Garner who, Again, his father was kind of an organ legend around town, but he played great tenor saxophone, but he could play a gig on piano and you would think that's his instrument. And then James started taking me around to hear Phineas Newborn, And there was another great legend there by the name of Charles Thomas, uh, who was a really big influence on Harold Mabron. They, you know, and, uh, Harold always said that's who turned him on to Phineas. Uh, and so, you know, between Charles Thomas and, and, uh, Later, you know, Bill Easley, the saxophone player, he moved there and from Pittsburgh, I think maybe, but he he started playing with Isaac Hayes' band. And there were some really great jazz musicians in Isaac's band. And uh a really good pianist, Sidney Kirk. Uh there was a good pianist that played on some of the stack stuff named Marvell Thomas, um, who I'd go listen to all these guys and so uh it was just like I say, a lot of really great pianists, jazz pianists around to listen to. And, uh, but, uh, again, I'm self-taught at the piano and I, and I think, you know, in some ways it was good, but then definitely it, it, in terms of the problems I've had with my hands, it probably had a lot to do with that because I practiced a lot, but I used to practice thinking the more pain, the better. So I, I developed probably at the time, I didn't know it was tendinitis, that's probably all it was, a carpal tunnel, but at the time I thought it was arthritis and it kind of got i never kind of really recovered from that. But, uh, but so hanging out with James, uh, James would take me over his house and, and he had this great record collection. So, uh, and the, the, the jazz band I was playing in at the time, James was the conductor for it, you know, and, uh, this was a big band. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and so, you know, like I say, uh, I, I remember, since i didn't know how to play jazz but i felt like i knew theory and basic harmony pretty well from playing, having played rhythm and blues i would just ask james to let me borrow certain records and i found myself learning to play people's solos i mean it wasn't something like i say he told me to do it was like i tell people i don't know nothing to play i knew the blues and that scale and that kind of stuff and i knew basic scales but but i just remember one of the first solos i learned was a, a Billy Taylor solo on the tune Sunny and then later Oscar Peterson solo on Girl from Ipanema and uh I remember we did a big band concert and we had this Murray MacPaulin chart it seemed like it was called Piano Fantasy or something and I just remember it featured the piano and it was a block of blues in B flat and uh and it had these stop time courses in it and uh and I was kind of scared to death cuz I didn't have no chops you know I'm trying to practice hand and learn the piano at the same time and uh so i asked james you know if he had a record of somebody playing blues and b flat so he gave me this freddie hubbard album hub tones with Herbie solo on on blues and b flat so you know my my thought process was well you know i'll just play three or four herbie solo courses and uh <laughs> and i tell my students i'll say it was kind of funny because you know i'm thinking i'm ready and uh so about the you know, the first two courses I was probably cool and by the third or fourth course, I kinda got lost my place and I was telling the people think, Man, he was smoking for a minute <laughs> and then the solo just <laughs> went downhill. You know, but uh but you know, it's like uh that was kinda like but I but I tell people that was kind of what I did in rhythm and blues. You know, it's sure. like, you know, if if you heard a Booger T's solo uh uh uh, you know, I remember playing trumpet and there was this tune called Grazing in the Grass by Hugh Masekela. And, uh, if you couldn't play that solo, you wouldn't consider they to take you serious in a, on an R&B gig. So, uh, if you were a guitar player and, uh, you were listening to some Jimi Hendrix, if you listen to Purple Haze, you had to, you know, the first thing you did was try to cop what he did. And so it was kind of a natural thing for me for jazz to, like, learn it exactly like the record as much as you can then try to put your own spin to it. And so, uh, so that's what kind of how you know I kind of just got into the language of music. Not you know I, I never wrote out solos, but I would just learn people's solos, and then and uh, it didn't matter what instrument it was. You know, I, I tell people I learned as you know probably as many Freddie Hubbard solos in some ways as some trumpet players may have. So. <laughs>
1: before we kind of continue along the the chronological path now that you well now and f- for decades you've been an educator mm-hmm. and so you're in an institution where the idea is to is to kind of more formally impart the language of jazz how do you balance that with your own successful experience of learning it in a I think, a more organic way. How, do you, how do, you, do, you, do you find some way to get students to both kind of follow a curriculum but at the same time to be excited about exploring and just learning from the records and, and that kind of thing? I,
2: I kind of have a tendency to put a little bit more emphasis on, on exploring and learning from the records. I always tell students, well, really, once you, if, once you learn your scales and basic chords, the next logical step to me is going to the records you know, going to the source and and uh, and I feel like I always usually can give them a, a lot of examples from having talked to masters like uh I I can remember talking to uh at least hearing an interview that Chick Area did on Murray McParlin's show. And uh but then I remember a conversation we had with Chick Corea at James's house. Uh when the first time Chick came to Memphis well would return to forever the the electric band with Lenny and Stanley and Bill Connors on guitar. And uh, so James' group got to open for him. And so James, the second time I think he came, he had dinner with us over James' house. And and uh, so, you know, I was, all of us was kind of picking his brains, but I just remember he him telling us a story about how he learned people solos. And he was telling us how one record, uh, I think it was Horace, it was, record, blowing the blues away, how he learned every solo on the record, Blue Mitchells, the, you know, the sax solos and everybody. And, and as a young student learning to play the music, that had just a really big, you know, impression, left a big impression on me that, you know, I'm going about this the right way. If this cat said that's what he did. And then I remember him telling us that, uh, you know, that by the time he was in, after high school or something, he was kind of bored playing the piano. So he started playing drums for a while. And uh and then I remember him telling us he played trumpet in his father's lead lead trumpet in his father's big band. And, you know, at the time you'd it Oh, I bet right. You know, but uh <laughs> but then I remember seeing him on a, this old talk show, the Down the Shore show, with uh Dizzy Gillespie and Tony Bennett and he told Dizzy that same story and Dizzy kinda started laughing and chick said, Seriously, he said, Let me see a trumpet He said, You remember this? And he saw playing one of Dizzy's solos and I was thinking, Man, I bet this cat hadn't picked up a trumpet and who knows when but all all those kind of little things, uh, hearing a bootleg tape of Joe Henderson, uh, when you know I was teaching at Berkeley and that that store Looney Tunes, this guy Lewis used to get all these bootleg tapes, and uh, he gave Javon Jackson this tape of Joe Henderson practicing for a gig, and hearing Joe playing, just like Sonny Rollins, and so, you know, like I tell my students, I I can just give them so many examples, you know, hearing. Uh, Freddie Hubbard on this West Montgomery album at 16, sounding like Lee Morgan. Uh, uh, hearing Wallace Roney on a recording, uh, at uh, Howard University or something. And you know, like I say, so it, it just kind of told me, well, this is the way to go. You know, you learn, as Chicks ex- said to Mary McParlin in this interview. He she asked him, did he learn solos? And he said, yeah, you know, if you think about it, that's how you learn to do anything in life. You watch a master do it and then you figure out how you want to do it. And, uh, and I used to keep that recording to play it for my students at Berkeley and just so that they, they know. Cause, you know, some teachers tell, tell students, well, you know, you don't want to learn licks and you don't want to learn solos, but yet at the same time, that's what they're playing licks. And, and, you know, it's like, you know, e- even, you know, I tell people, uh, I heard a boot, a tape of Keith Jarrett uh or guy let me hear when he was like fourteen years old sounding just just like Bud Powell. <laughs> and then I remember Gary Burton telling James and our story about how when Keith was at Berkeley, it seemed like it was he had a trio with Harvey Mason and maybe George Mraz or somebody like that. But they said he said they were doing a lot of the Oscar Peterson trio arrangements. And so, you know, like I say, even the great players, you know, Chick, you know, you hear you can hear Bud Powell, you know, that that record The Thing to Do by Blue Mitchell. That record, again, was a milestone for me to hear Chick Corea after hearing Light as a Feather. And then later I discovered that record, hearing Chick Chick sounding like Bud Powell and Horace Silver and Monk, but hearing them just getting into the McCoy thing a little bit too. And so, you know, again, you know, you hear the Bill Evans thing and Chick's playing, you hear Amit Jamal, you hear McCoy, you hear. But you hear Chick Corea, you know, so... uh, so, so with my students, you know, I I um, really uh, tell them, well, you know, basically that's the path that I took, and and it seemed like it not only worked for me, but even, you know, some of the students I taught at Berkeley, like Danilo Perez, and you know, here his where he was at the time. Cyrus Chestnut was a student, and and uh, so you know, like I say, you realize, man, these guys didn't just start out playing this way; they went through a, uh, a, a lot of changes, going through a lot of places people to get to where they ended up.
1: So, speaking from your own personal experience, how do you start to, to strip away the things you're emulating so that, you know, you go through that period where you're learning, you're, you're copying, you're figuring out how the mechanics of it work by copying. How do you start to strip that away and then get down to Donald Brown, for example?
2: You know, that, that's, that's a good question, and that's I think that's what really makes me can really appreciate the masters. Uh, because, you know, like I say, uh, I, I always, I, I don't feel like you know, especially as a pianist, I don't feel like I have a sound, a style, and I think a lot of that might have to do with the fact that I've had problems with my hands. You know, where I always felt like it limited me to playing what I was hearing. But, but, and the thing is that I, have as a teacher, that I've been able to, you know, impart them to my students is just what you're saying—the importance of learning it verbatim. But then, spend—I usually can show them you know, 10 or 15 different ways you can take the same idea and, and change it into something else. I take a voicing and show them a lot of different ways they can do it. And that was one of the things that I think, you know, playing a lot of different instruments as well as just uh, absorbing so many pianist flares that I was able, you know, I feel like I can do, like, uh, I, I don't, like I said, I don't think it necessarily comes out, but I feel like there is more individuality there than what I'm able to demonstrate. But, uh, but, but you know, I always tell students, I said that's what really makes me can really appreciate a McCord Tyner because you can hear in early recordings of him sounding like Bud and Ahmed I mean, Jamal and different people. But, you know, McCord's playing changed like two or three times. And what was so unique to me is through each change phase, he sounded like himself. And to me, I tell students, that mean, he had to spend a lot of time Figuring out. Okay, I know how Bud did this. Uh, I say somebody like an Ama Jamal, he 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 absorbed Bud and, and all these guys. But uh, some people never get past that phase of you know Im- imitation. And the, and it's, you know I tell them it's nothing wrong with that. But 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 the really great players, was the ones like a Joe Henderson, you know yeah he checked out Train and Bird. But for him to come up with sound like he did and Wayne Shorter sound like he did, uh, Woody Shaw. Yeah, we know what he absorbed Dizzy and Clifford and all these guys, but man, to come up take intervalically what he absorbed from train and took that to the trumpet, or what McCord took from train and that took it to the piano and come up with something totally different. You you really spend a lot more time, you know, with Tony Williams there at the drums. As Miles said in in, in one of his documentaries, said so you knew he was gonna be bad because, you know, he didn't have no girlfriend to mess up his head. Some of the stories I heard about Tony from uh, uh, Alan Dawson, and there was, there was a local drummer here named Dennis Dow, who, who told me this great story how he used to have a lesson after Tony Williams with Alan Dawson, and uh, he said he heard he heard all this great drumming going in there, and then he said when he went in there uh, he told Alan he said man that was some really nice stuff that you were showing that kid he said that wasn't me playing that was a kid. And I think Tony was like thirteen or fourteen then. Uh, and uh so, you know, like I say, that's uh uh that's a hard thing to do. You know, you listen to a pianist like Jerry Allen, who to me, you know, again, you hear her play and she sounds free and and uh you know, the great Mugger Miller and you know, it's you listen to Mugger, you listen to Kenny Kirkland, you can hear the Herbie McCoy and uh chick influence through those guys, but they spent a lot of time uh trying to turn it inside out to make at least when you hear certain things you can say, Yeah, that that sounds like Margaret Miller. That sounds like Kenny Kirkland. Uh and that's a hard like I said, that's a hard thing to do, you know, especially after what the, the the big four as I call them, Chick, McCoy, Herbie and Keith Jarrett, you know, you know, it's kinda hard to find something new to do. But this is like I say, it's 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 guys out there making making their own mark and and and, and yeah.
1: Now, I have to say, uh just to comment on, on something you said about your own individuality, you know, as I've been traveling the country on this tour of the East Coast so far, and, and I've been telling people as I go, you know, this is who I'm hoping to interview in the next town. And as, the whole way I've been here, I've, I've known since the tour started that I was going to be seeing you. And so you're one of the people I was able to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to get a chance to interview Donald Brown. And I think people's perception of your individuality as a pianist certainly as a writer but I but as a pianist sounds to me like it's very different than your own because I, I mean I certainly think you have your own individual sound and the people that I've been telling I was going to be talking to you, I mean have uh, amazing amounts of respect and love for your playing mm-hmm. and um I'm just surprised to hear you say that you feel you feel like you haven't arrived at an individual sound. Cause I, I'm, I don't know if you're being falsely modest, which a lot of people do in this business, but, <laughs> um, but I really think that you have. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that.
2: You, you know, you know, something I, I think now, you know, I, I've had a lot of people, you know, uh, some of my contemporaries, you know, like, you know, Jeff, you know, Jeff Keys or Kenny Kirkland, different guys. Have some, You know, they say I have a harmonic way of doing things. I feel like I have some things harmonically that I tell people I don't think it's necessarily new. I just have a, my spin on it. So that's something I recognize in my playing. And uh, but, you know, I, I, I put it to I, I feel like the, it is. I just feel like because I, I, I can never physically get to a lot of the things and execute what I'm hearing that sometimes it's still that it stops short of of getting to me and it might, you know, you can hear some, well, that's coming. You know, I, I don't feel like I play a, s- certain things verbatim, like uh, Win Kelly, who's one of my heroes, or McCor. but there's some things, you know, I can say, uh, you know, like, like I'm kind of excited now because I'm just starting to be able to play the piano again. I had surgery back in January and I hadn't played for about a year, so but because I'm really taking my time now, I'm kind of excited because it's kind of make me kind of rethink things, think, uh, about how I want to do things in in a different kind of way. But yeah, I, I, like I say, hopefully I think it's probably, it's not of been, uh, a false modesty or anything. I think it's just, uh, me being too close to it and me just, uh, I always feel like, man, I'm not playing what I'm hearing. I'm just playing what my hands will allow me to play, and I feel like it's like really very limited, even in not only in, in playing but even writing and, and arrangements. So, and and uh, so that's the reason I was always reluctant about doing trio records, cause uh, I, I feel like I have the imagination to come up really with some really great stuff, but in terms of executing, I have to come up with what I'm able to kind of function around. So, but uh, but but. But back to what you were saying, I've had a lot of people tell me that. You know, I've, i you know, a lot of guys, you know, some of the guys I work with, like Freddie Hubbard, uh, Joe Henderson, uh, you know, and working with Buster Williams. I mean, that was, and, and it's kind of nice, like I say, when it's coming from guys like that. So, man, yeah, you know, man, Donald Brown, he's got a way of doing stuff. Uh, uh, uh you know, uh, telling me, you know, that Freddie was saying, yeah, man, you, you got some different kind of stuff going on harmonically. And, uh, and so that yeah, it, it means a lot. But uh, it's it's I don't know. Like I said, I I I uh, <laughs> I'm I'm getting ready to do a recording in September. Uh, it's, it's supposed to be a trio record with some guest artists, and it's Bob Hurst going to play bass, and Marcus Gilmore, and my son, oldest son, Kim, is going to play drums on a little of it, and and. Uh, I talked to Wallace Roney today, so Wallace said he'll play on a few tunes, and hopefully Kenny Garrett said he'll play on some, and then I'm going to try to get Billy Pierce. But uh, my point is, is I, I uh, uh, talked to Jeff Keeser, because Jeff has re- just recorded a tune of my New York on a solo record he has coming out, and, and then uh, there's a local record we did to document jazz in Knoxville. I'll give you a copy of that, too. And I, I wrote a tune dedicated to this percussionist, Anga, Anga Diaz, who passed away, but Called Ange, but Jeff recorded on his vocalist, uh, Denise Donatelli, and it's on her upcoming record in September. So, you know, because Jeff has re- recorded a few of my songs, I wanted to kind of record some of his music. So, uh, so he sent me about four songs in the mail and, and, uh, and uh, one of the songs he sent, he said, it's got the Don Brown thing in it. He said, when you get to it, you'll hear it and stuff. And so Jeff is like so one of those cats who's always telling me, and Harold Mayburn and Mulgrew, you know, some, you know, they, Coming from those guys uh I take it as a big compliment. Maybe they can hear something that you know 'cause it's you know what it's like it's like you you do your thing every day, so uh and I just feel like uh that my my technique has really stepped stopped me from stepping out into what i'm hearing but but uh but you know like i say i I'll, I'll take the compliment out it's uh i I love hearing that you know that uh. I, even guys like I said, Kenny Werner. You know, I I remember uh, playing this festival. I play every a lot October in Clermont Ferrand in France, and standing backstage with Kenny Werner, and uh, we were listening to Marcus Roberts play, and I was telling Kenny, you know, I was just going off how great Marcus sound, and Kenny said, Yeah, man, but you know, you got your own thing too that you do different, and blah blah blah, and, and uh, you know, later uh, Kenny told me because the the band I had at the time was with uh, Gary Bartz and Bill Mobley and Ira Coleman and Samurai Celestial and we played and Kenny's liked the music so much that he told me he was going to record something with that instrumentation, which he did let his next record with a uh, Joey Lovano and Randy Brecker. And there's it's a tune he wrote on dedicated to me on that called The Cat. And so, you know, like I say, uh to get those kind of compliments from somebody like, like a Kenny Werner. And so, unless you know, well, it's it's, it's something there. You know, you just uh, you just got to keep plugging away at it.
1: did you first start noticing problems with your hands developing as a result of the way you were practicing?
2: Actually, very, very early. I started the University of Memphis in 1972. And like I say, after marching band, I would just practice from four to six hours. And, uh, you know, I tell people, I know it seems stupid now and it seemed like it was a no-brainer, but I just would practice and it would be hurting and I would just keep practicing, cause I thought, you know, the more pain, the better. And now you, you know, you think you idiot, huh? You didn't know any better. But I tell people, well, if I'd had a teacher, they would have told me to stop and shake it a while, or stop for a while. But, and so when I first went to see a doctor about it, I told him I hadn't heard of carpal tunnel at the time, or, uh, or tendonitis. So I just thought maybe it was rheumatoid arthritis. And so the doctor just kind of jumped on that and diagnosed it as arthritis. But then after seeing, man, I've seen so many doctors that after a while I started thinking, uh, I don't think this is just arthritis. I think it's some other things. And that kind of led to me having all these surgeries I've had over the recent years. But but if I you know, knew then what I know now, then I would probably, the doctors probably would have checked it out as just being carpal tunnel or something. And and, and, uh, would have told me, you know, just don't play for a while. And, sure. and, uh, and then it got bad when I was teaching at Berkeley because I went through a period of writing for a faculty recital I did and I would write and then it would hurt. And then, uh, it got to the point where I couldn't write for months because it got so bad, you know, and, but, you know, it was kind of, you know, learning as I go because I had a wife and kids, and at that time you don't have time to kind of deal with yourself. You're just trying to make a living, and then you're trying to do the music thing, and and then teaching at Berkeley was a grand itself, and so uh, and uh, in between that I started going back out with Art Blakey, and and while I was teaching at Berkeley, then I'd go out with Freddie Hubbard. So it was, it was. I've learned some i tell people I probably learned more about myself in the last twelve years about my body than I have in the fifty eight years I've been on the planet. you know, but
1: you know it's interesting um I interviewed a a guitar player who uh in uh, Delaware on this tour who also dealt a lot with repetitive stress injury, and she said something I never really thought of before or thought of it in this way before. she said you know musicians are seated athletes that we are doing putting incredible stresses on our body all the time, and yet we don't train like athletes. And in our education system, there's not a part of the education that deals with us as athletes. And, I mean, you were even a step beyond because you were teaching yourself at the piano. But I still think that's the case. I mean, I don't hear of all that many programs in schools where they tell you how to take care of the body that has to make all this music.
2: Well, you know what? I tell people, like, uh, my first surgery I had in I think 2001 or something, and I had both shoulders done at the same time for torn rotator cuff. And uh, but like I say, uh, man, I was sitting like in the corner of that couch for this this burning sensation. And, uh, but all the, the, the tears weren't showing up on MRI and x-rays. And it wasn't until I went to the Cleveland Clinic in Jacksonville the fourth day that they did a an orthogram and then with put, injecting the dye. That's when they found I had three tears in both shoulders. But, but until then, I'd heard of torn rotator cuff because I played a little football in junior high school. But it wasn't till then, like I tell people that they, like you just said, these, these are sports injuries. And because I still follow basketball and football religiously, and I realized, man, when you hear, hear these guys having these different kind of injuries, I realized, man, this is what I was dealing with. And, uh, so now I have a whole different, you know, perspective outlook on, on dealing with this. But, but I've gone through, like I said, two or three hand surgeries and a couple of shoulder surgeries and a knee joint replacement and lower back surgery. And, and, uh, and a lot of it was because, uh, you know, like I said, taking off the time to not play, the the, the doctors told me, but instead of, they told me to lay off three months, they usually don't tell you long enough. And for an athlete who gets care around the clock, great, but I probably need to lay it off five or six months. And uh, then at at some point I had a couple of surgeries overlapping, but but yeah, but just what you said, I mean, uh, that's a good way she she put it, you know, seated athletes.
1: I, uh, of course I need to ask you because if I don't I'll get angry emails. Uh, tell me about how, how Art Blakey happened and, and what that experience was like for you with playing with the Messengers.
2: Uh, well I, I tell people you know that definitely probably still today after having played with uh, a lot of the Masters maybe because it's like your first girlfriend it's like my, my really first big gig uh, in jazz uh, that's still just I felt like the highlight of everything because you're playing close, you know, you're getting, you're right there with a master who walked the streets with Bird and Monk. So, you know, you're getting first hand information. And, but it came about through James Williams. Uh, 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 James was was really taken by my talent and thought I was this whiz kid because I could learn solos and learn music so fast. And, and, uh, so James, you know, he 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 recommended me to audition with Clark Terry's band, and I turned it down. You know, I just told him I didn't feel like I was good enough because I was practicing jazz, but I was playing in, in a lot of top forty bands. And and so then I think he did you had,
1: did you not even do the audition or did you do it and then turn the job no, down? Not
2: that's what I didn't even do the audition. Oh, that's okay. what I meant. I didn't even do the audition. And then he had Pat Martino. He, he talked to me about auditioning for Pat Martino, and I didn't do that audition because you know I just didn't really feel I was ready. And uh and uh so then I think he had Betty Carter call me and uh and uh and I told her, you know, I didn't I wasn't interested in auditioning. And uh then a couple of weeks later I called her back and because I kept thinking about what James was used to tell me. So well, don't you ain't gonna never think you're good enough. And so I called her back and she said, Well that's okay. Uh, cause are you you'll probably leave me anyway, like the rest of them did. And, uh, and what she was alluding to was that, uh, I guess she was trying to say that at the time, you know, Maxine, who used to manage Woody and Dexter and Johnny Griffin. And she was saying that, that a lot of musicians in her band, like Kenny Washington, left to go with Griff and Curtis Lundy and Dan Mulgrey left to go with Woody and John Hicks left to go with, somebody so she was saying you probably just stay with me for a while and leave like the rest of them did anyway and uh you know she said it kind of mean like i said well you know so then you know james was telling me well you know i'm thinking about leaving booze man and and uh and so at that point you know i just thought to myself you know i should just try this because james you know if if i keep not trying him he's going to quit recommending me and and it's like you know he said that you know i just thought about what he said if this guy got enough confidence in me and uh so you know I went up and auditioned and uh uh I think myself and maybe two other three up three other pianists auditioned and and uh and I end up getting the gig
1: On the band at that time when you started?
2: Uh, the band was once, went- well, Winton was out touring with Herbie, but he was in the band at the time, but he took a three month leave to, to tour with Herbie VSOP. So Wallace Ronnie was subbing during that time for Winton, and then Bobby Watson was in the band, and Billy Pierce and Charles Fambro. And uh, so it was kind of fun- funny because when I went up to, after I did the audition, they, they were having this Art Blakey reunion concert at Carnegie Hall and uh, man it was just you know you walk in this room I tell my students you know you walk in the rehearsal and you see Freddie Hubbard Don Byrd, Wayne Shorter uh, Walter Davis Jr. But anyway after the rehearsal uh, I was standing outside and Brantford uh, uh, either somebody introduced us uh, something, but anyway Branford told me something like man uh, we are going to be playing together in the in uh, in in a week or two or something, I said really. He said yeah. I, he said uh, 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 I'm I'm going to be joining the the messengers and uh, and uh, it seemed like he told me Art's going to get rid of Bobby Watson. And uh, so it was kind of all this was like news to me. And uh, so you know I think we played uh, we played. I think the first gig I did was in Montreal, which they have a, a video of it with Wallace and Clarence C. was on. That's who it was Clarence C. was playing bass. At the time, cause I think uh, Charles Fambro might have been still playing with McCord for a minute or something. And, uh, but we did Montreal and Toronto and Edmonton, and then we came back and played Blues Alley. And then Bradford joined the band, so for a while we had two alto players. And I remember, uh, I think we went to Boston or somewhere, but at some point Bobby Watson asked me, he said, uh, Donald, have you heard anything about Art getting rid of me? And, uh, somebody said, well, Bobby, I don't, I sh- probably shouldn't tell you this or something, but yeah, I think he planned plan to get rid of you. And, uh, so, you know, at a certain point, you know, uh, Art, you know, got Bobby out the band and stuff. But, uh, you know, I remember talking to Bobby about it and Bobby took it in a, you know, in a, in a great way because he felt the same way I did when, when I left the band. Well, I didn't leave the band, but I almost quit the band, uh, earlier one time because Art owed me some money. And, uh, And, uh, so it was kind of, it was kind of funny because Art owed us some money, owed the band some money from coming back from Europe. And, uh, so I was, I was kind of commuting between Memphis and New York at the time. And I just remember thinking we were going to play Fat Tuesdays and, and Art owed me about $1,100 and I was telling them, well, Art, I can't come back and do the gig till you pay me. And, uh, and, you know, so, uh, it was kind of a funny story. Art, Art kept telling me, he said, well, come on up, you know, I'm gonna pay you and this and that. And I said, I said, well, uh, so anyway, uh, Boo was saying, haven't I always paid you? I said, yeah, but, uh, but, uh, for some reason, anyway, he, uh, talked me into coming, uh, coming up. This was the, this was, actually, this was the second time I was with the band with Wallace and Kenny Garrett and Jean Toussaint and so on. And uh but anyway, he sent me a check for eleven hundred dollars and so he flew me up there. And so and uh and it was kinda funny because uh uh I think uh Wallace somebody told me Wallace was men Silk trying to sabotage the band or something. And uh but uh so anyway when I walked in fat sweet bases, art we looked at each other and just broke out laughing because he knew he knew you know, I mean he, he he knew that I just was a little nervous about Trusting him. And as it turned out, the check bounced. But, uh, but he eventually paid me. But the funny part is, it's like, I told people that as far as I was concerned, if Art never paid me that $1,100, I was been totally fine because I told people, I said, I couldn't measure in dollars what I got from him. You know what I mean? So if, if he hadn't paid me, I would have been okay. But, uh.
1: Tell me what, something about what you did get from him.
2: Man, like, you know, just that, that first, what, 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 what can you say about, uh, how to be a team player, how to uh, build solos, how to play solos, how to structure solos, how to run the set, how to just be a professional, how to carry yourself on the bandstand, off the bandstand. He uh, just kind of instilled a confidence in all of us, but but especially myself, because you know I, I was I was a nerv- I was just nervous when I was in the band. I always felt I tell people. Because I was in there with these virtuosos, Winston and, and, uh, Billy Pierce and, you know, everybody had a lot of technique and, and musically I felt comfortable. Like, you know, that was one of the things the Art was really impressed with that, that I knew the music when I joined the band that, you know, James told me, he said I was one of the few pianists that when I joined the band, I'd have no music. I, you know, James showed me the music and, and some of it I had learned on my own. So musically I knew the history of the piano chair and stuff, but you know, I was nervous about playing up-tempo and stuff, and so, uh, but, you know, like I say, uh, Art had a way of just really, you know, I I remember it was at Blues Alley, and uh, we had a band meeting, and uh, Art had me stick around, and he said, look. He said, man, I love the way you comp and I love the way you play and stuff, but just relax. You ain't got to impress nobody. You're up here with me and they out there. You know, he said, you don't owe me nothing but just to swing me, in the, swing me into the ground. Other than that, you know, and after he said that to me, I just found myself relaxing more and more. And, uh, and then I started hearing through people, you know, just some of the compliments he was saying about me, you know, that I was one of his favorite pianists and Cedar Walden and, you know, he just was really treated me like a son and and even after I left the band you know sometimes I would uh a few times he called me which really surprised me I was living in Boston at the time and asked me how things were going and there were a few times he asked me to come down this was when Marguerite was in the band and asked me if I had some music new music I had written to rehearse the band on and and so uh you know like I tell people uh I was in a band in 81 with Winston and Brand for that band, and then I, I think I rejoined in '86 with uh uh, real Wall- Wallace him, and it was supposed to have been just for the summer, for the summer months. But Art talked; he he had this way of kind of anyway. So for some reason, I I couldn't just quit, so I ended up doing it for about eight months or something. And uh and uh and after Wallace and Kenny Garrett left, uh, Wallace left to go with. With uh, well, no, after Wooden left, that's what it was. After Wooden and Branford left the first time, Terrence and Donald Harrison was in the band with me for for a short time, and uh, even for a brief minute, Woody Shaw was in the band uh, with me with art, which was kind of nice, you know, because uh, Woody didn't do a lot of gigs, but uh, I I did a lot of video, I mean, audio taping, so I got a lot of that bootleg stuff of, of, of when I was with the band. And uh, same thing with, when I was with Freddie Hubbard, I taped a, a lot, so uh, I got just a lot of bootleg recordings of me with Freddie, with Art, both times, with with, with uh, some with Joe Henderson, uh, a lot when I was at Berkeley.
1: In, uh, in 1988, you, if I have my chronology right, you came here to the University of Tennessee in Mm -hmm. Knoxville. How did you end up here in Knoxville? And whatever it was seems like it must have worked out pretty well because it's 2012 and here we still are.
2: Yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting. Uh, when I was at Berkeley, I think it was my third year, we went on, the faculty went on strike because of the pay. And, and, uh, so I had a home still in Memphis. That I was renting out to my uncle, but, but the pay at Berkeley still wasn't that good. So the original plan was for me to finish out that year and move back to Memphis, but I ended up staying two more years and, uh, and to give you an idea, it was, it was still cheaper for me to pay my rent in Memphis and have, and share an apartment with a student at Berkeley and, and fly home maybe once or twice a month than it was when I had my whole family, uh, in Boston. And so, uh, I was about to uh, move back to Memphis out of frustration of teaching at Berkeley and take a job at Federal Express Was a friend of mine. I thought he could get me on, but then...
1: And you had kids by this time?
2: Oh, yeah. I I'd had my fourth kid by then. Wow. Because c- my daughter, she was the only one born in Boston. Okay. and uh but, uh but James Williams, the teaching job I have here, they offered it to Ellis Marcellus, and he didn't want it, and they offered it to James, and he didn't want it. And so James recommended me. And, and Jerry Coker knew me a little bit from both of us teaching at the Able Soul camps. And, uh, we should
1: mention that Jerry Coker teaches here on the faculty also. uh
2: And so, uh, at that point I was just anxious to get back down South close to Memphis anyway. And so uh, when Jerry called me about, uh, applying for the job here, they flew me down to audition and, uh, And uh, interviewed me, and uh, you know uh, they liked what they heard, and so I've been here since.
1: Boy, it seems like James Williams really runs throughout your life as a as an important uh, important (laughs) figure.
2: (laughs) You know what I tell people? I probably next to my wife, he probably was definitely one of the most important people in my life, not just musically, but period. And I tell people, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today if it weren't for him. It's uh,
1: he sounds like an amazingly generous. Oh, he, he
2: was. I, I tell people he put me before he put himself a lot of times. And, and he had a confidence in me that I didn't have in myself. I mean, James was, man, everywhere I went, you know, man, James Williams said this about you. And, uh, matter of fact, that was, had, you know, that was the funny part about the gig with Art Blakey. Like I, James, I had this art, uh, rhythm and blues tape of uh, some originals. That, uh, I played all the instruments on, and I didn't realize James had let Winton and B- Billy them hear it, so they were kind of already impressed with what I had done from hearing that stuff. But, but, uh, but James Williams, there was a guitar player, uh, that owned a few other group called the Barcades. that of course, yeah. yeah. And, uh, named Michael Toes, who, uh, played with the Barcades, and he played with Isaac Hayes. And, but anyway, he, he was another guy that, uh, got me into doing re- recording sessions and, uh, you know, he was really taken by my talent and had me fly to Detroit to record with people in Detroit and LA and Atlanta and, and just, uh the, uh, uh, Willie Mitchell, Al Green's producer. I was a staff, uh, keep, uh, staff musician there for him for, for, for about a year. And, uh, but my, my cousin, I don't know if you're at a William Bale who's on Stacks, but that was my first cousin. Uh he lives in Atlanta. But uh but this same guitar player, Michael Toads, he got me on sessions with him. And so, like I say, uh Marvell Thomas, who did a lot of the stacks stuff after Booger T uh m M G he was one of my heroes, but but uh but because I could play the stack Rhythm and blues stack stuff well, but I had the jazz thing going too. Michael thought that was kind of interesting, so I got to like I say, fly to Detroit record with Dennis Coffey, uh, fly out to L.A. record with Clarence uh, McDonald, who uh, co-produced the Emotions' "Best of My Love" album, with you know the album with Maurice White and and uh, Bill Withers' "Lovely Day," and play with James Taylor. So you know, like I say, and the thing that I what I loved about that was that. Even though this guy, Clarence was, we were recording R&B, this guy could sit down at the piano and play Cherokee and everybody on all those sessions. And that was like my dream. You know, like as a musician, I spent a lot of time playing rhythm and blues music. And that's the reason I asked you if you wanted to do it at my office because I got pictures of me with, with all kinds of people. But, but, uh, but I always liked the idea that if I, that most of my heroes, even though they played rhythm and blues, including Willie Mitchell, Al Green's producer. You know, he played in Phineas Newman's father, Big Band. And uh, and so that was, to me, that if I'd been making rhythm of blues, I would be able to play jazz still. And so, uh, but like I say, the, the session I did in Detroit, it was four keyboard players on it, myself and a guy named Lorenzo something, who was playing with the Marvish Orchestra at the time. There was another guy who was playing... It was a keyboardist for Philadelphia International Studio. And so I always thought it was nice that we did this disco record for Dennis Coffey. Well, not Dennis Coffey produced it, but it was a group called CJ and something. But uh, but all the musicians played jazz. And the same thing with Isaac Hayes' band. You know, most of those cats, Bill Evans, I mean, Bill Easley, you know, when they went on the road with Isaac, they had a regular jazz gig that I'd go hear these guys, and they were, man, like swingy in the ground. And so, uh, so... You know, like I said, Michael Toes was was very instrumental in my development as well as James Williams. But from a jazz standpoint, almost everything I've, I've done, and, and he just gave me a lot of great advice about, you know, structuring my career. So, I mean, I've composed two or three songs for him, and, and you know, I can sure Mulgrew Miller and Jeff Keyser and Billy Pierce, we all can attest to, you know, his, his generosity. But then he was this brilliant, you know, keyboard is to boot, you know. Sure. Yeah.
1: Well, finally, let me ask you, uh, next year marks a quarter century. You've been here at the uh, University of Tennessee. And I wonder how you've seen jazz education change in that time because it, at least from what I've seen elsewhere, it has undergone a pretty big change in those 25
2: years. I, I always consider myself one that haven't accept, don't accept change as easy, especially from dealing with technology. Sure. You know, I, I, I swore I was never going to get a CD player. Until I realized, well, oh, that's going to be the only way I can hear some of my CDs. And, but from from an educational standpoint, I, I love teaching and, uh, you know, being a parent of four. I always equate it to t- teaching to, to being a parent. And you love it when you can see some of your students, you know, like, you know, like I say, or Danilo, Cyrus Chestnut. I was able to recommend them for their first professional gig with John Hendricks and Danilo, with John Hendricks and Javon Jackson with Art Blakey and Billy P, Billy Kilson with with uh, Donald Byrd. But uh, and so you know, like I said, I've had a lot of success as a teacher. But if I, the, the, I think the part that I don't like as much is the fact that in some ways it's good that you got so much music in print now for students to learn from. You know, you can just go out and buy a transcription of uh, Brad Mehldau solos or Joe Henderson solos. That's good in one sense, but I feel like a certain authenticity is kind of lacking there sometimes when they then just take something off the record themselves. And now, the the other thing, you got so many instructional videos, too. It's good. For, you know, I always say in some ways for the lazy students. And in, and in some cases, students are not necessarily lazy, but just don't have a good ear. So I tell some of the students, you know, well, you know, it's good to go out and buy these books. But uh, but overall, like I said, I think it's, you know, still diminished some of the greatness of the music and the musicians and what they've done when you can go on YouTube now and watch all these people. So that now when they come to town, you're not as excited about going... You know, students not as excited about to go hear some of the people. Whereas myself and Mulgrew and James, we always, we would reminisce about what it was like to drive from Memphis to Nashville to hear Chick Corea at the exit end. And that was like a really big deal though, to drive from that Memphis to, you know, to Nashville to hear McCoy Tyner, And now, so, you know, I've looked at students, you know, we've had people here, as I say, in your own backyard that that playing at a local club here, And the students don't go to it. They might, they might not go to a clinic. And I'm thinking, man, do you realize, man, I walked, you know, sometimes two or three hours from my house to the Memphis Coliseum to hear Parliament Funkadelic, not knowing if I was going to be able to get in. But me and my friend, we figured we could lie and tell people we were the roadies. Uh, we, but we'd walk that far just to hear the music, not knowing if we were going to get, get, get in. And, uh, but now here it is. You can, you can, you, you got, uh, Michael Wolf or you got, Money Alexander or somebody here, right on school campus, and you're going to miss the clinic. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing. So I think uh, jazz education is, is good and it's changing a lot. I think we, we're we turning out some really great virtuosos, but by them not being able to get the music a lot on their own, as well as the others, and it's no fault of theirs. You, you can't blame them for a lot of the legends pass, passing, like an Art Blakey uh uh, but, you know, like I tell a man, when you got a chance to go hear some of these legends, you know, uh, Benny Golson or any number of people, you, you just can't, you know, you, it won't be two years later that you realize, man, I had a chance to go hear these people and you missed it. So, uh, education, it'll be interesting. Like I said, you're talking with Jerry Coker. You know, he's one of the pioneers of that. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I love it to death. I, I love going out doing clinics and, the whole thing, but just being able to, to, I I, I think the having first hand knowledge to having, you know, I think why I've been really successful as a teacher is that my students, you know, over the years, whether it was at Berkeley, I knew everybody. So if Fred Hirsch came to town, if, if uh, Kenny Werner came to town, Kenny Barron, I would have my students, if, if they had time to get a lesson with them. And it's the same thing since I've been here, you know, Rachel Z been through here a few times and my son. And everybody's got, he, you know, they got a lesson with Rachel Z, with George Colligan, with Mulgrew, anybody that comes through here, cause I want them to have just more than my opinion. And, uh, you know, we, I, I, we had Kenny Werner here for, uh, artists in residence for three days, and it was my suggestion to bring him here. And so, uh, but, you know, like I say, that's what, what it's about as an educator. You know, you got, you, I feel like, uh, I, I, you know, the best teachers are students. And I feel like that was the thing when I was at Berkeley. My students could go to the regatta bar and see me play with Freddie Hubbard. But then if Hank Jones was there, they could see me on the front row, you know, t- cheering him on. Because that's, you know, that's, it's, it's, I tell people, it still hadn't hit me yet. It's like, maybe in another 10 years, I'll be able to look back and realize, man, you know, I got to play with Johnny Griffin and Ada Joe Davis on the same stage and Bobby Hutchison and, watch Dizzy and all kinds of people sitting with Art Blakey and, and so I've been really blessed and fortunate to kind of to, to get the best of two or three worlds but at least you know from teaching and and uh and still getting to travel and and now seeing the next generation my sons starting to make a name for themselves and and uh, like I said a lot of students out there so
1: my guest, and uh, and I'm going to say it even if you won't Is the great pianist and uh, composer Donald Brown And uh, man, what a pleasure I've, Ever since I went on the road for this tour I've been looking uh, forward to this day And getting a chance to hang out with you and talk to you And I'm so glad we had a chance to do it Thank you for being here Thank you, man That's music from Donald Brown here on the 400th episode of The Jazz Session. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi. I'm Jason Crane. Thank you so much to everyone who has helped make this show possible over the years. Let's hope there are hundreds more episodes where these came from. You can help make that a reality by going to the jazzsession.com/slash join to become a recurring member of the show, either monthly or yearly. You can also make a one-time donation to the Jazz or Bust Tour, which starts again tomorrow at the Detroit Jazz Festival, by going to the jazzsession.com/slash tour. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can see my travel diaries and read my poems at jasoncrane.org. Thanks so much for listening. Now get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.